Alrighty. What is up, everybody? Welcome to uh, the Wayfarers Christian Church Sunday evening live stream. If you're tuning in with us live, I'm super excited to see all of y'all tuning in and joining us for this Sunday service. If you're watching it later, totally understand as well. I think I've mentioned a few times I'm kind of a big uh, basketball fan, so uh, the NBA All-Star Game is going on tonight at this exact same time. So if you are watching with us live, I respect you for making the correct decision and and, and valuing church above uh, something like the NBA All-Star Game. Um, I'm not sure I would have been as good as you, but I don't know. Maybe you're not a basketball fan and you're just wanting to tune in anyways. Whatever your reason is, I'm super excited, super happy, and super glad that uh, you have decided to tune in with us today. Um, My name is Nick Griffin. I am the lead pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And if you've been tuning in over the last few weeks, we have been going through uh, a sermon series where we have been really looking deeply at the words of Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount specifically. And uh, this week we have kind of reached uh, a, a pinnacle. We're kind of at the at the culmination of the, uh, really what I think is kind of the center of everything that Jesus wants to say in the Sermon on the Mount specifically. And so I'm, I'm really excited about getting to dive into this passage. And so we thought, you know, we're changing things up. There's no reason, there's no uh, rules to how we do this necessarily, especially at a new church plant. And I'm just so excited to get into it. We're just going to jump straight into the sermon right at the very beginning. Um, and I think uh, there's going to be some really cool things that you're going to be able to get out of it. I'm excited, like I said, about getting into this very important central passage in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we jump into all of that, I just want to introduce the passage itself to you. So let's, uh, let, let's, play that passage um, from uh, Jacob, our uh, online outreach minister. He read the passage here. Let's uh, go ahead and play it. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48 says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. So, like I said, this is this is central to the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is a really important and um, a really awesome passage to focus on specifically just because it is um, especially difficult for us. It's especially difficult for, for, for a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of the things that is the most interesting to me whenever I read this passage is just the the, the language Jesus uses specifically, and the fact that he brings up um, just the, the 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 fact that we are called to to specifically love our enemies. Now I don't know about you, but um, I, I as I was trying to prepare for the sermon, I was trying to think through. I don't do I really have like enemies specifically. I can't think of any specific enemies that I might have. Um, I, I was trying to remember, and I don't remember exactly where this 
moment happened. I believe it was um, whenever I was uh, helping my mom. My mom, she um, works in uh, the public school systems here in Memphis, and she used to do this summer kind of volunteer situation where she would help out and take care of um, uh, little kids that were in kind of this summer schooling program. And I needed some volunteer hours one year, so I decided I was going to go and uh, help her in this after school summer school program with a lot of these kids and again I'm not a hundred percent sure this is where this story happened but as far as my memory can tell I'm I'm pretty sure it was one of these summers when I was volunteering with my mom helping out with some of these little kids they were maybe you know first or second grade somewhere in there and um, I have joked several times that I've kind of been like a, like I was just born like an old like a 55 year old man I've, I've never been uh, super great with with kids or, or with teenagers there's been lots of times where churches have been like hey Nick you're young you should come do our youth ministry or something like that and I've, I've always emphasized with them I, you just really do not want me to do that I'm not good with teenagers I'm not good with kids this was one of those situations where I was just I was helping my mom out and I was um, trying to get some volunteer hours for something that I needed specifically. But one of the moments I I remember that was just so funny was that I'm sitting there awkwardly trying to hang out with the kids, awkwardly sitting there trying to help the kids out. And my uh, one of the kids, they were just asking each other different like get to know you questions. And, you know, the different kids were asking each other specific questions. Um, And it's so interesting just to see the way that kids brains works and the kind of questions that they might ask. A lot of them were really, really funny, really interesting questions. Um, But at one point, one of the kids turns over to me and he says, hey, Mr. Nick, who's your arch nemesis? <laughs> Which is like the funniest like little kid question to ask ever. Because in that moment, I was like, who is my arch nemesis? And I was trying to convince him, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have an arch nemesis. And he just could not believe it. No, 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 no. Everybody has an arch nemesis is kind of his, his point that he was making. And, and I just, just sitting there thinking, I, this idea of like an enemy of like your arch enemy of your arch nemesis, something kids are familiar with. Obviously, you know, you got, you got cartoons, you got superheroes. There's always like the, like the ultimate enemy, the ultimate bad guy of everything that you are doing. And you know, you got your Batman and you got your Joker. There's always a specific kind of ultimate enemy individually for every single hero in a story. And so obviously when the kids think it through it, that's seems like a great question for him to ask, to get to know me, who is your arch nemesis? And, I just sit there and talk to him and convince him over a long stretch of time that I could not remember I d- or that I did not have one. And I don't know if he was ever fully convinced, but I just had to sit there and convince him. Now, I, I, I don't have an arch nemesis. This idea of, of, of enemies, of having a specific enemy in our lives is um, something that we're not necessarily used to talking about. But that language, even though it's not common for us, it is super common in the Bible. You see it here in Jesus's pa- in, in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words here. But you also see it um, kind of all throughout the Bible. There's a lot of the Psalms where, where David or the, another psalmist will, will specifically mention their enemies, and they will specifically mention their desire to have God uh, judge their enemies, and, and that'll be like a, like a major central focus for them. And that, and that language of, of having an enemy, it, it sounds archaic, it sounds old school, it sounds really like Bible-y, but the, the, the concepts of it and the, and the ideas that we can gain out of understanding these passages, I think are, are, are very, very, very applicable to us today. 
But because it is so weird, because it's not an idea that we talk about, because it's not something that uh, I would assume many of you are not able to immediately think of in your mind, who is your arch enemy? Before we kind of really get into unpacking this passage, I wanted to make sure that we would kind of lay out some of the reasons why I think we have a hard time relating to this passage in our culture today. See, there's a lot of specific things that have to that surround how we relate to our enemies that are that are different for us in our culture than they would have been in Jesus's time or even before that in other Bible cultures. And so there's some very specific things that we have to understand about our enemies before we can really understand what Jesus is saying. And the very first point, the very first one is 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 really simple. It's something that is um common in Jesus's time but less common in our time. And I think the reality of the fact is that the, the, this is the most imp- one of the most important things to really ap- apply this passage is that we have to know our enemy. That is the first point. You have to know your enemy. And let me explain what I mean by that a little bit and, and why this is a problem. The, the, the reason this is a problem in our culture today, and when I say in our culture, I'm talking about, I guess specifically, I would just call it like American evangelical Christian culture. That's the the culture I grew up in and I assume many of you have grown up in or been a part of in in the United States today. And one of the main issues that I have seen in a lot of American evangelical culture is that we are very good and very, um, you know, clear about uh, defining enemies sometimes. We're very, very clear about defining who the enemies are. I've grown up in church. I've heard um, uh, a whole bunch of different sermons from different pastors and different people that are just very honest, clear, direct about who the enemies are, you know, and I'm sure many of you could mention the, 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 the clear enemies that you've heard in church. You know, people will, will mention specific political parties. They'll mention the Democratic Party or just liberals in general. They might also mention uh, abortion clinics or, or groups like Planned Parenthood and, and, and specifically target those as their enemies. They might also mention things like, um, you know, uh, maybe the scientific establishment, maybe certain uh, biological uh, scientists who are pushing certain evolutionary agendas. The, the, the list could go on and on. They're very common, very clear. We all know who the enemies of American evangelicalism are. But one of the issues that I've started to notice is that we're very good and clear about defining those enemies. But in our day-to-day lives, we just re- we really do not know our enemies at all. Uh, the, the, the best way I can think to explain what this kind of looks like is, is actually kind of a, a funny and interesting example. Um, I was reading a, an article on my phone um, a, a few weeks ago that was just really funny, and it was laying out uh, the fact that if you look through the history of, of medieval art, specifically art from, from the medieval times, and even kind of into the Renaissance times, there's this really funny phenomenon that you kind of see over and over and over again which is that those medieval artists apparently had no idea how to draw lions. It's really funny. We've got a a few pictures of them that we can put up on the screen, and Adrian's going to kind of scroll through some of these. Um, But these are some horrible (laughs) pictures and depictions of lions. These are all from medieval uh, paintings, and uh, all of them look just wild, completely different, completely goofy. Um, This is their attempts Uh, of all these medieval artists, of drawing lions. 
and there's been a lot of speculation as to why are they so bad at drawing lions? If you look at horses or, or other animals or other things that'll show up in medieval art, they're like really, really good art. You know, they're good at painting humans and painting horses and painting uh, birds and all, all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, the lions just look ridiculous. And uh, one of the uh, one of the kind of speculations that a few people have is that a lot of medieval art is is European art. It's art from from the continent of Europe, where natively there are no lions. There's lions don't exist natively in Europe. Where, where lions exist is uh, natively, you know, is in the continents of Africa and parts of the Middle East and parts of Asia. That's where you get lions. And those lions end up being very popular in a lot of, you know, Greek and Roman literature uh, from from back in the time. From uh, the, the the kings would know about these kind of mythical beasts almost in their minds of uh, from these faraway lands. They knew that lions existed, but the, the 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 fact was most of these artists had just never seen a lion in person. So when it came time to paint or to draw or to illustrate that lion specifically, they were kind of just going off of a general description, maybe something they had read in a book, maybe something that they had um, uh, heard from a, from a different person, maybe something that was just kind of a general description of what that lion might look like. But they themselves had no personal and direct experience <laughs> with a lion. So when they go to draw it, when they go to s show what it looks like, it ends up looking kind of ridiculous, kind of wild. That's what a lot of these medieval paintings of lions looked like. And I think that that's the same problem that I am finding over and over and over again that we have in the American church today. We are a lot like those medieval artists who are very, very good at clearly drawing lions when we may not actually have ever seen them or known them before. And kind of what I mean by that a little bit is is just that we don't have any personal relationships with a lot of these people that we would consider our enemies. Um, I, I had a conversation about this a few months ago with our teaching pastor, with Noah Randolph, and he was um, talking to me about how both of us really felt this very strongly whenever we both worked at um, this coffee shop we started called Avenue Coffee. The, the the kind of thing that we were noticing over and over and over again about our lives, both of our lives specifically, is that all that time that we spent working um, at the coffee shop, we started to kind of interact and get to know a lot of people who had a lot of perspectives or who represented a lot of these worldviews that in our church days, in, in our early church days growing up, um, these people would have been defined clearly as our enemies. And what was so surprising to us is that as we got to know those people, as we got to know them better, as we got to know them in real life, um, we realized that the, the, the stories we had been told about those kinds of people in church or from a pastor or somebody specifically, they just they didn't line up with the realities of, of those people that we that we met in the coffee shops we would we would meet these people who who were our enemies according to uh, growing up in church and we would realize that the the stories and the descriptions of these types of people that we had been told in church just did not line up with the reality in in our experience the the descriptions of these pe types of people in church were about as similar to the actual people 
as some of these wild pictures of medieval lions are to actual lions. There might be some similarities. There might be some things that kind of overlap, but the just when it comes to the, the, the reality of exactly what those people are like, we, we just, we did not know them. We did not really know what they were like. And that created all kinds of issues um, kind of in our lives. And, and, and this is something that I've seen kind of play itself out over and over and over again, not just for me and Noah, but for a lot of Christian kids who grow up in the church. You see, uh, there's a whole bunch of different reasons for why this disconnect has started to happen between the descriptions of people that we get in church versus the actual people that we will meet. But I think one of the one of the beginnings of that disconnect um, is is a good thing. It was a good thing that people wanted to do, which is that um, when you had kind of the rise of American evangelicalism in the in a lot of the late '80s, early '90s, you had a lot of, of parents that were wanting to just truly. Um, protect their their innocent children from from being exposed to things that that might harm them. They wanted to kind of uh, make sure that they only watched things that they only watched television or only listened to songs or only interacted with other Christian kids or with Christian music or with Christian movies. And 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 deep down, I think that the desire to do that, I, I completely understand. It, it is it it's a good thing that you want to protect your children from being exposed to things that they don't. Uh, have the like development and capacity to really uh, to really process. I've been thinking that a lot myself. I have a, a, a son. He's um, just over a year old now, and I, I've been thinking that already as as he's getting older. How how can I be very intentional and very wise about how I'm parenting him and making sure that I'm not exposing him to things that he does not need to be exposed to? But I think sort of an unintended consequence that happened from that, from all these parents wanting to protect their children, is that the easiest way that they found to do that was just to separate their children <laughs> from the rest of the world, from the people around them. And so that ended up becoming all sorts of things like maybe a lot of homeschooling became a big thing, a lot of private schools specifically. You started to have a lot of just Christian youth groups, a lot of church groups, church leagues, um, a, a, just a lot of specific like separate Christian subculture things. I've kind of experienced that tension myself a little bit as I've talked to other kids who didn't grow up in the church and all of the like TV shows and all of the the the, the cultural things that were so important and so foundational to my childhood, they aren't familiar with. They have no idea about them. You know, I'll, I'll talk about some of my favorite VeggieTales cartoons, a, a, a cartoon show that it's a Christian show for kids and the non-Christian kids had no idea what I was talking about. They had not grown up with a lot of that cultural moment. And as you started to kind of get this separation, I feel like the gap has just continued to widen more and more. This has actually been proven as people have been looking through. Um, they've been doing studies just kind of showing that in the last few decades especially, and this is true of everybody, but it has been especially true of Christians in the church, over and over and over again, we are getting to a place where people do not know anyone in their immediate circles that does not agree with everything they believe. Basically, there are Christians who don't know anybody, who are not close friends with anybody, or not even acquaintances with anybody, who is not also a Christian, also conservative politically, also uh, about the same socioeconomic class as them. Basically, we're getting more and more segmented into these small groups of people where everybody that surrounds us believes and knows the exact same things as us. 
And like I said, at a glance, that seems like a good thing to a lot of people. People are kind of happy about that. Yeah, it's a, I don't have all this tension. I'm not trying to deal with a lot of people who believe things differently than me. But ultimately, I really don't think that this is, this is, this is helpful. And I really don't think that that's even necessarily helpful uh, for children. Like I said, I, I, I understand the impulse. I understand the desire. I'm a new father myself, and I completely understand the desire to, to protect your children from unnecessary danger. But as I've thought through a lot of these issues, something that has continued to come to mind is a story that my dad used to tell me um, all the time. You see, uh, I've mentioned before my, my parents, both of my parents, they were missionaries in the country of Uruguay in South America, which is um, where I was born. I was born in, in Uruguay. And the ministry that my parents used to do is that they were uh, ministering specifically to a very poor uh, area of, of the capital city of Uruguay. So the capital city of Uruguay is called Montevideo. In the center of Montevideo, there's this, this massive park. Think like, you know, like imagine like Central Park in New York City. It, there's this huge park in the center of Montevideo that's ab about that big, about as big as Central Park. And at the time that my parents were in Uruguay, this park had kind of become like a like a huge slum, just like the poorest of the poorest people in Uruguay um, who had who couldn't afford housing in any of the other parts of the capital city. They had just all collected in this big park and they had built these like shacks and these tents. And it was just this huge sprawling slum. And, and that's where these people lived. And most of these people, they made their their livings basically by going around the city in these horse-drawn carts because they couldn't afford cars. So they would have these cars, uh, these carts being pulled by horses, and they would just dig through trash. That was how they made their living. They would dig through trash trying to find things that were maybe able to be resold, things that were valuable, um, things that they could take and fix up and resell. And that's how they would kind of make their living is just going through the trash, taking these carts, picking things up from other people's trash. And it was in this community that my parents decided that they wanted to minister. This, uh, this whole slum in the park was called the Cantegril. And my parents started a, a ministry in the Cantegril. And, and so what they did is they, they went around kind of door to door to a lot of these shacks and a lot of these tents. And they asked the people, what would be the one thing that we could do for you that would be the most helpful in helping you to, to, to get out <laughs> of the Cantegril. What is the thing we could do for you that could help you get out of here? And over and over and over again, the people said, we need somebody who can take care of our kids so that we can try to find a better job, so that we can go out and get a better job than just digging through the trash, so we can go out and find more of a respectable, real job. We just need childcare, basically. And so my parents, they started a, uh, a daycare um, ministry there in the Cantegril, in the middle of this slum in Uruguay, where they would take care of all of the children of a lot of the people that lived in this slum. And it was really just, and they would do it for free. It was just completely a ministry that they did. And it just really was this awesome thing that helped a lot of those people finally break the cycles that were keeping them there and get out of that slum. But the story I thought of specifically was one that my dad always used to tell about when I was first born. You see, I was born in, in Uruguay, and my mom had a lot of medical complications whenever I was born. And so I ended up being born really premature. I was born a few months earlier than expected. 
And this was a pretty dangerous thing in, in the country of Uruguay. It's a third world country. They don't have access to all of the same medicine that we have uh, here in the States. And so they weren't sure if I was even going to survive um, as, as a premature baby. I was very premature and very small. Um, and they did everything they could, and they could, and obviously I'm here today. <laughs> I survived. I made it. But the story my dad said was, was about just the, the very first week after they had been able to bring me out of the hospital. I had spent uh, like three or four months in the hospital after being born because of how premature I was. They had me in an incubator. They were wanting to make sure I was okay. And after months of being in the hospital, the very first week that they had me uh, as a newborn premature baby, the very first thing they did was that they went to an evening prayer service in uh, the Cantegli, in that in that slum part of the city. And all of the kids that came from the daycare and all of their families and parents were there and they all wanted to come over and they all wanted to come and see me, see the newborn baby. And all the kids were coming and they were like stroking my face and, 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 and telling my mom how, how cute I was as a baby and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, my mom says that there was a, another lady that kind of came up to her and was just like, you can't do this. This is horrible. These kids are so dirty. Their parents spend their lives digging through the trash. Your child is premature this is so dangerous there's no way that you should allow them to get this close to your child but my parents they both had this this very interesting attitude that I'm starting to realize is almost countercultural, where they were just convinced that no this is actually the best place that I could be they said they just had this real trust that the Lord was going to protect me and they wanted to introduce me to to the kids that were at the center of their heart and the center of their ministry there in Uruguay. And that's really been the attitude that my parents have taken throughout a lot of my life. They have been um, just really, really encouraging me to pursue um, things that people would consider maybe somewhat dangerous. I, I've been able to travel all over the world with my parents. I've been able to travel to, to areas and parts of the world that are really dangerous. And uh, that I think specifically a lot of parents would have, would have tried to keep their kids away from. They would have tried to protect their kids from being exposed to these people, to these things, and to these parts of the world. But my parents, they had the, the kind of opposite uh, attitude. Their attitude was that these are the places, these are the people who have the most need. And one of the best things that we can do for our child is expose him to, to these parts of the world and to these people specifically. And this is something that I, I'm very thankful for. I think it has really helped to open my perspectives, to change my mind, and to allow me to be a lot more open-minded about what other people in other places might be like. It's something that I have been, just like I said, very thankful for, something that has very much helped me. And it's a frustration that I've had when I've seen other Christian parents kind of have uh, the opposite attitude, this attitude of their ultimate job as parents is to protect their children from all danger that exists. My dad has had this frustration over and over again um, in the last few uh, years as he has been um, working here at uh, the college that we broadcast from, this college called Mid-South Christian College. My dad is the president of the college here, Mid-South Christian College. It's part of the hookup is why we get to use the chapel space. You know, you got a little family connection there. And one of the frustrations that my dad has always had is when he has talked to, to teenagers and to kids who are 
wanting to come and to study here at the college where it's a college that focuses on training ministers and preachers and worship leaders. And he'll, he'll talk to these teenagers that are just super committed, wanting to help, um, to do ministry, to help in the church and to serve the Lord. They'll become super convinced that they want to come to Bible college. Maybe that's at a camp. Maybe they find out about the school somehow and they just want to do it. And my dad has had this experience over and over and over again, where the kids will become convinced but their Christian parents are the ones that actually convince them to, to, to do something else, to, to, to get a secular degree, to go and get another job. They'll mention all kinds of reasons about like, well, you know, ministers don't make enough money or uh, for the kids that want to do missions. It's like, oh, you can't go to those parts of the world. Those parts are so dangerous. What could happen to you? And just this desire as parents to, 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 to provide safety for their kids um, it, it can, I really think in a lot of ways, backfire. And I, I worry sometimes that these parents are, are keeping the kids from actually doing what the Lord desires for them to do. The Lord has asked a lot of people to do a lot of very dangerous and seemingly illogical things. But there's a lot of blessings that have come from them pursuing that. But how does this connect all the way back to this idea of, 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 of knowing your enemies? Well, I think that that is the difficulty that we have these days. In our desire to provide safety and security for our friends and for our family, I worry that we have like sectioned them off and we have not allowed them to actually get to know people who, who, who believe differently than them, who, who have ideas that are different than the ones they have. And the problem is that I kept seeing it play out over and over and over again was that when uh, a lot of these kids who had grown up being told one thing about who their enemies were would get maybe to college, get into some other job or get into an area where they were finally experiencing for the first time, finally getting to know those quote unquote enemies. And when they realized that they were nothing like what they had been taught uh, in church, when they realized that those enemies were, were, were maybe really nice people, were, were completely different than the examples they had been given in church. Um, I, unfortunately, it caused a lot of them to, a lot of these Christian kids to question uh, their parents, to question the church, to question Christianity as a whole. And I saw it play out over and over and over again in the college ministry I did. These kids would be confronted with the realities of these enemies they would find that they weren't as bad as they thought they were, and their response was to throw away Christianity, the church, and everything else altogether. I think one of the best things that we can do as Christians is, is, is you know, use some wisdom, uh, uh, have the Lord lead us in what we can do, but make sure that we are in a place where we can really get to know and connect with those people who are different than us. I'm not actually denying that some of these people may, in some ways, be enemies of what the Lord is trying to do. There's a lot of people out there who, for a lot of different reasons, are doing things that are very counter to what the Lord is trying to do. But if we are just good about making sure that they actually get to know what those people are like, making sure that we are not misrepresenting those people, and making sure that we just, we just know them as human beings— I think that that is the key to really living out this passage, what Jesus says. And so specifically, what Jesus is calling us to here is, is to love those enemies. 
And before we can love them, I, I just I, I firmly believe this. You cannot love people that you do not know. So that may mean that you just have to have more relationships with some of those people, have some experiences with some of those people, venture outside of those comfort zones, those safe comfort zones that we have created for ourselves, and just trust the Lord enough to know that when we get out into those dangerous places, maybe rather than it being an opportunity for us to, 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 to have harm or to have something bad happen to us, we can instead view it as an opportunity to actually live out what Jesus is asking us to do in this moment, in this passage specifically. Jesus is, in, is, is asking us to love our enemies. And this is, this is very countercultural and very, very difficult. It's not something that would have been common to the people of Jesus' day. You can see in the passage, he kind of says, you know, uh, the, the common thing, the thing that we're all used to is, you know, love the people that are like you, love the people that are your friends, love the people that you care for. And he's just saying, what's so different about that? What's, what's such a big deal about that? Everybody does that. Of course, he says, even the tax collectors, the worst of the worst in their society, even those people love the people that love them, even the pagans, even, even all these people that you, uh, that you just look down on, even they do that. That's not new. That's not uh, something that is going to really make a difference in people's lives. But the thing that's going to be weird, the thing that's going to make people really listen, perk up, and figure out exactly what it is that we are doing is when we love our enemies. And I just worry that we have so sheltered ourselves off that we just don't have the opportunity to have those experiences and to get to love and to get to know those enemies. But on top of that, the 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 thing that just has kind of come up to me over and over and over again, and the reason I think this passage is so important, because I really do think a lot of the Sermon on the Mount culminates in this idea. This idea of love for your enemies is kind of one of the defining factors of Christianity. It's one of the things that makes Christianity so different from all of the other um, religions and things that are out there in the world. With Christianity, one of the central tenets of it is, is, is loving your enemies. And that can look like a, a whole bunch of different things. You know, it can it can mean a whole bunch of different things. Lots of times when people hear this, you know, why can't we all just love each other? People will say, oh, you know, all you need is love. That's what it's all about. And it's it sounds nice, but but what does that specifically look like? What does it specifically look like for us to love our enemies? And this is why I, I, I just love that Jesus doesn't just leave us hanging. And he gives us a specific example of, of what he he wants us to do which is that he wants us to pray for our enemies. And that's the thing he says. He wants us to pray for our enemies. This is one of the most just life-changing things that you can do. And if you just take one thing from the sermon, one thing that I want to encourage you to do is just, just live this out. Do this exact thing uh, that, that Jesus is asking you to do. Whoever comes up in your mind, whoever the people are that you just know um, that bother you, whether whether they are people you know specifically or not, you know, they might be political figures. They might be people that you just firmly disagree with. They might be people that you are aware of that you know are doing da very dangerous and hurtful things to other people in the world. One of the most just life-changing things you can do is to make it a, a point to to pray for them. There's this phrase I see go around online all the time that basically just says it is really, really, really hard to hate somebody that you are praying for. 
And so it's a simple application, but that, that's what I want us to do. I want us to, 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 to find time, wh- whether it's here in your daily prayer time or whatever it is. I want you to, to, to this week take a specific moment, take a specific section of time to pray for your enemies, whatever they may be. The, that, that's one of the most practical and most important things that we can do.